Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Crime Couch. I'm your host, Kaylee, and today we're going to be talking about the Zodiac Killer. And I made sure to cover all the details of this insane case. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. On a, on a large one. The Zodiac Killer, more formally known as the Zodiac, was an unidentified American serial killer who is believed to have murdered at least five people in the Northern California area between 1968 and 1969. He also taunted police and made threats through letters sent to the newspapers from 1969 to 1974, before abruptly ceasing communication. Despite intensive investigations, no one has ever been arrested for the crimes and the case remains open. The mystery surrounding the murders has been the subject of numerous books and movies, including David Fincher's acclaimed 2007 feature called The Zodiac. To this day, he has never been found, although through the years many people have tried to solve the ciphers that he's left behind sent to the police. The first murders widely attributed to the Zodiac Killer were the shootings of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Arthur Faraday. On December 20th, 1968, the couple was on their first date and planned to attend a Christmas concert at Hogan High School, about three blocks from Jensen's home. They instead visited a friend before stopping at a local restaurant and then drove out to Lake Herman Road. Lake Herman Road was frequently visited by couples who wanted to have a little bit more privacy and also known as Lover's Lane. Sometime around 11 p.m., it is believed that the Zodiac Killer pulled up beside the Rambler and ordered them both out of the car with a 22 handgun, firing off at least two warning shots that struck the car. One bullet shattered the right rear window and lodged itself into the left rear wheel, while the second bullet struck the headliner of the vehicle and was retrieved from the upholstery on the opposite side. The weapon believed to have been used by the perpetrator was considered to be a JC Model 80 or a High Standard Model 101, with Super X copper-coated long rifle ammunition. Betty Lou then supposedly exited the passenger side of the Rambler, followed by David Faraday. What followed after this is all assumed by the police, according to the crime scene, but what they do know for a fact is that David Faraday was shot beneath the lower portion of his left ear, causing a fatal brain injury, and he collapsed next to the right rear wheel of the vehicle. He was still breathing at the time, but sadly, Betty Lou Jensen had suffered catastrophic injuries and detectives were unable to find any signs of life. David Faraday was then rushed from the scene, but he was unfortunately pronounced dead on arrival at a nearby Vallejo hospital at 12.05 a.m. Betty Lou Jensen either made a desperate attempt to flee or was ordered to run by the killer and was gunned down by five bullets to the right side of her back, eventually falling onto the floor 33 feet from the right rear of the Rambler before falling backwards. Just minutes after the murders, at approximately 11.20 p.m., both victims were discovered lying on the gravel turnout by Stella Borges, a driver passing along the road. She had left her ranch, which was only one and a half miles west of Lake Herman Road, only minutes earlier. She then sped toward the police stations at high speed to alert the police, where she eventually ran into Captain Daniel Pitta, who would recall arriving at the Lake Herman Road crime scene at 11.28 p.m. The turnout is located approximately 3.2 miles east of Columbus Parkway. 
and four miles from the Blue Rock Spring parking lot, the future location of the Zodiac Killer's second attack that occurred on July 4th. Earlier on that night, described in the police report around 9 to 10 p.m., a white Chevrolet Impala was seen parked idle without occupants in the gravel turnout. Although this vehicle may have possibly been owned by an innocent motorist, it is easy to assume that the parked car may have come into play later in tonight's events. Two local hunters, Frank Gasser and Robert Connolly, had actually passed the Lake Herman Road turnout at approximately 9pm that evening because they were headed towards the Marshall Ranch when they noticed a white four-door hardtop 1959 or 1960 Chevrolet Impala parked up next to the car. At exactly the same time, they saw the local sheep herder Bingo Westner exit the turnout gate. After Connolly and Gasser left the Marshall Ranch, they then headed back towards the Gasser Ranch. They left the area around 11 to 11.15 p.m. and saw no one in the car at the time. And Bingo Westner, a local sheep herder that we mentioned earlier, stated in the police report that he was checking in on his sheep at approximately 10 p.m. and he also noticed a white Chevrolet Impala parked by the south fence of the entrance to the pumping station. He also observed a red Ford pickup truck with wood side boards in the area. This was the truck that Frank Gasser and Robert Connolly used and parked at the Marshall Ranch. At approximately 11 p.m., Peggy and Homer Yore were returning from Sacramento, heading west on Lake Herman Road because Homer Yore wanted to check some pipes near the Marshall Ranch as he worked for a construction company laying pipes in the area. As they passed the turnout, Peggy noticed the young couple in the Rambler and stated in the police report that they were driving west on Lake Herman Road. She observed the Rambler station wagon owned by the couple parked with front end heading east, and she also saw the couple in the front seat moving around. They proceeded towards the Marshall Ranch, which was located approximately 30 seconds driving time beyond the turnout, where they also saw Frank Gasser and Robert Connolly as they turned into the gated entrance on the ranch. James Owen was another eyewitness of that night, and he was a supervisor at Humble Oil at the time and was heading along Lake Herman Road to begin his graveyard shift. He is the closest witness police have interviewed and was estimated to have passed the turnout at approximately 11.14 p.m., only moments before the double murder. In his second statement to police, he recalled on December 24, 1968, that when he passed the turnout, he saw nobody in or around the two vehicles and estimated that they were parked along each other only three to four feet apart. After passing the turnout with his car radio on low volume, he thought he had heard a single gunshot one quarter of a mile or 30 seconds beyond the turnout. However, this gunshot was never mentioned to police in his first statement, just nine hours after the double murder, in which he estimated that the two vehicles to be 10 feet apart, which by all the evidence appears to be a more realistic estimation. In the following months, investigators were already hitting dead ends and blind alleys, desperate for fresh new leads. Nobody involved in this would ever be prepared for what exactly would transpire in the following months and years. Just shy of seven months later, at 12.40 a.m. in the morning of July 5, 1969, police dispatcher Nancy Slover received a phone call that would change everything. This marked the beginning of a bloody campaign of terror by the Zodiac Killer who would eventually commit further attacks on five people after the Lake Herman Road murders, with the Zodiac Killer claiming himself responsible for the deaths of at least 37 people. But whether this is the truth 
or just an inflated ego of an insane or calculated killer remains the question to this very day. Just before midnight on July 4th, 1969, Darlene Farron and Michael Magu drove into the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, just four miles away from Lake Herman Road. Earlier that night, they decided to not have dinner at Mr. Ed's diner and instead head over to the Blue Rock Springs Park and hang out. While the couple sat in Farron's car, a second car drove up into the lot and parked alongside them, but almost immediately drove away. Darlene had turned the lights and the motor off and had the radio playing, but since it was the 4th of July, some young kids had also pulled up in a few cars and were out laughing and setting off fireworks. Within a short time though, the kids ended up heading out, leaving the couple alone again. Shortly after this, in about five minutes before the shooting occurred, a vehicle pulled into the lot and the driver turned the lights off on the car and pulled around to the left side of their car, approximately six to eight feet away, and sat there for a minute. The car eventually left, but around 10 minutes later, it returned once again, and this time parked a little farther away from their vehicle. This time, the lone driver exited the vehicle carrying what Michael Magu describes as a high-powered flashlight, the type you carry with a handle, and an armed 9mm semi-automatic handgun as he casually approached the couple's car. Magu at first thought that it had to be the police because of the unknown person's demeanor and started searching for his ID. But before he could even pull it out, the man raised the handgun and without uttering a word, fired a slew of five rounds at point-blank range through the passenger side window, striking Michael and Darlene several times. Both of them were hit at such close range that several bullets had actually passed through Michael and into Darlene. The killer walked away from the car, but upon hearing Michael's moaning, returned and shot each victim twice more before driving off. On July 5th, 1969, at 12.40am, a man phoned the Vallejo Police Department to report and claim responsibility for the attack. The caller also took credit for the murders of Jensen and Faraday six and a half months earlier. Police traced the call to a phone booth at a gas station at Springs Road, located about three-tenths of a mile from Farron's home and only a few blocks from the Vallejo Police Department. George Bryant was one of the only witnesses to this accident, as he was the son of the caretaker at Blue Rock Springs Park and was in bed at his house, located just 800 feet from the parking lot. He recalled these details in a police statement, saying that he could hear laughing and a few fireworks being shot off, but he couldn't see anybody. At approximately midnight, he heard what appeared to be a gunshot. This was much louder than any of the firecrackers. A short time later, he had heard what appeared to be another gunshot, and after a short pause, he heard rapid fire of what appeared to also be gunshots. He then heard a car taking off at super speed and it burned rubber and was squealing its tires as it sped along the road. He wasn't sure of the direction of the travel, but he didn't check as it was the 4th of July and thought it was somebody celebrating. The fact that George Bryant seemingly heard gunshots, although the stories and accounts of the attack differ, it is 100% certain that nine shots were fired with seven casings retrieved from the right side of the Corvair along with two additional extended bullets casings discovered on the back passenger floorboard of the vehicle. This indicated that the killer ultimately leaned into the vehicle when concluding his senseless attack on Magu as the young man took refuge in the back of his vehicle. Unfortunately, Farron was pronounced dead at the hospital, but Magu survived the attack despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. 
Magu described his attacker as a 26 to 30 year old, 195 to 200 pounds or possibly even more, 5'8", white male with short, light brown curly hair. On August 4, 1969, the San Francisco Examiner received a three-page letter with smudged writing. There is no record of an envelope this letter came in, and therefore they don't really know how it arrived there in the first place. In the three-page letter, the Zodiac Killer detailed the first two attacks at Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs Park and taunted the police by writing, By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? Even though the code was deciphered only four days later, on August 8th, by Bay Area residents Donald Jean and Betty June Hardin of Salinas, California. They also decoded a message that said, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. Although nobody seriously expected the code solution to contain his real identity, they would eventually be proven correct when the cryptogram was broken, unearthing the delusional ramblings of a calculated killer. Now, the Lake Barisa attack differed from the previous two crimes at Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs, in that the killer used a gun, but then switched to a knife in the brutal attack on Brian Calvin Hartnell and Cecilia Ann Shepard. This would end up becoming the third attack carried out by the Zodiac Killer. They were enjoying a pleasant picnic at Lake Barisa on September 27, 1969, almost three months after the Blue Rock Springs Park attack, when Cecilia Shepard became aware of a man close by acting strangely. The man was hiding out behind a tree watching the couple. He was wearing a black hood similar to the Executioner Styles hood and a waistline bib that had the famous Zodiac logo on it with some clip-on sunglasses. He then approached the young couple pointing a gun to which Cecilia would alert Brian with the words, oh my God, he's got a gun. Cecilia Shepard would later recall these details to Deputy Dave Collins after she survived the attack. The man claimed to be an escaped convict from Deer Lodge, Montana. Having just killed a prison guard and stolen a car, he demanded Brian Hartnell give him his car keys and money, to which Brian Hartnell gave them in fear. He then spoke to the man for several minutes to try and form some sort of report in an attempt to protect them both from any harm, but the man appeared on a mission, taking some white plastic clothesline from his belt before ordering Cecilia Shepard to tie up Brian Hartnell. And it was at this point, Hartnell suggested to his companion that he felt he could make a grab for the gun, but Cecilia told him not to try anything, fearing it may make the situation worse. During this brief exchange, the assailant had stepped back two or three feet just out of reach, and that chance was lost. The hooded figure then bound up Cecilia Shepard and then proceeded to stab the victims numerous times. Hartnell was stabbed six times in the back while Shepard received 10 wounds to her back and abdomen as she frantically rolled around attempting to minimize the impact of the blade. Clearly terrified, Brian, obviously fearing that they were about to lose their lives, stopped breathing in an attempt to fake death, realizing that if he thrashed around, the killer would return to finish him off. Fortunately for Brian, his tactic worked and the cold-blooded executioner ceased his attack and walked off into the distance. The couple was able to loosen their bindings, and Brian Hartnell struggled to make his way back up the incline towards the nearby road, where he was eventually seen and helped by a park ranger. Immediately after the 6.30pm attack, one key eyewitness, Ronald Henry Fong, was circling the lake in his boat at the time and heard the cries of the couple. Fong then turned his engine on and motored away to seek help at the Ranchero Monticello Resort. It was at this point Ranger Sergeant William White, on his routine patrol of Lake Barisa, received a call from park headquarters regarding the attack and proceeded to the resort 
at around 6.55 p.m. And Ronald Fong gave a statement as to what he saw to Sergeant William White. At around 7.10 p.m., Ranger Dennis Land arrived in his truck along with Brian, who had managed to crawl his way toward the road. And a little bit after, Sergeant William White radioed park headquarters to order an ambulance and deputies to the crime scene. Deputy Ray Land and Sergeant David Collins were dispatched directly to the crime scene and they were notified at 7.10 p.m. and arrived at approximately 7.40 p.m. It would be a further 15 minutes before the ambulance arrived, which now of course is about 85 minutes after the attack, and both victims were already in critical condition. 7.40 p.m. was also the time that the killer placed his call to the police from the Napa car wash payphone. At this point, the victims were being taken care of by paramedics, and Sergeant David Collins managed to get a statement from Cecilia Shepard regarding the movements and description of the killer. It was evident that Sergeant David Collins and both victims were unaware of the crime being the work of the Zodiac Killer at the time, only that an assailant had brutally stabbed the young couple. Detective Sergeant Kenneth Narlow and Richard Lonergan were also contacted regarding the attack, and both officers were sent to see if they could interview the couple. Brian Hartnell described his attacker as having brown hair, 225 to 250 pounds in weight, and 5'8 to 5'10 in height, but admitted he was a bad judge of height because he was so tall. Brian also stated that the assailant had a unique way of talking. He further stated the assailant wore a black hooded mask made of a cloth material, covering his entire head and shoulders and reaching down to his waist. On the front of the four-cornered mask at the chest area was a white circle with a symmetrical cross. During the conversation between the killer and Hartnell minutes before the murder, the killer had mentioned being an escaped convict from a local prison. It has also been speculated that the prison mentioned by the killer was Deer Lodge Prison in Montana. However, this may have been arrived at by the leading questions being thrown at Hartnell from the investigator while he was recovering under heavy sedation, therefore cannot be wholly relied upon. Although the couple survived the initial attack, Cecilia Shepard ended up passing away two days later to extensive injuries. Her official cause of death was described as cerebral anoxia due to the internal and external hemorrhage from the knife wounds. The autopsy report on Cecilia Shepard stated that the weapon used on her was between 9 to 11 inches in length and 1 inch in width. It was also stated that this murder weapon could be similar to a bayonet. After the attack, the killer drove to 1231 Main Street phone booth, 27 miles away in downtown Napa, and placed a call to the police department claiming responsibility and knowledge of the latest attack. Dave Slate, who was the relief police dispatcher, took the call and heard the killer utter the words, I want to report a murder, no, a double murder. They are two miles north of park headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen, and I'm the one who did it. At 8.35 p.m., Officer Kenneth Narlow was informed by Station One that the possible suspect in the double stabbing had placed the payphone call to David Slate close to the intersection on Main and Clinton Street in Napa, Kenneth Narlow duly contacted Deputy Harold Snook and immediately dispatched him to the payphone to process the evidence, where a palm print was retrieved but did not supply any matches within their database. The Paul Lee Stein murder became the fifth and final confirmed murder by the Zodiac Killer, despite the majority of the public believing that this is highly unlikely due to the nature of the crimes and based on other unsolved murders that have similar clues and similarities that reflect the Zodiac Killer distinctly, as well as the claim the Zodiac Killer made in the Exorcist letter that he admitted to killing at least 37 people. Paul Stein, who was a resident in San Francisco, had arrived for work earlier that evening at the Yellow Cab Company at approximately 8.45 p.m. 
Leroy Sweet, the assistant traffic manager of the Yellow Cab Company, instructed Paul Stein to a regular pickup at 509th Avenue, and this was the last contact he had with Paul Stein. 12 to 13 minutes later, he would be discovered lifeless, slumped across the passenger seat of his Ford Galaxy taxicab. Responding officers would later notice that the taxicab meter read $6.25 at 10.46 p.m., thereby allowing them to backtrack the journey and determine that Paul Stein had most likely picked up his second fare somewhere in the vicinity of the Mason and Geary intersection, or Union Square, corroborating the testimony of Leroy Sweet, who sent the last radio dispatch to Paul Stein. In fact, there is good evidence to believe that the Zodiac Killer entered the taxicab outside the Weston St. Francis Hotel, situated on Powell and Geary Streets in Union Square. Stein had logged in Washington and Maple as the destination on his bill trip sheet, but had pulled up just shy of the intersection of Washington and Cherry Streets at 9.55 p.m., adjacent to the 3898 Washington Street residence in the wealthy district of Presidio Heights, where his passenger drew a gun and shot Paul Stein to the right side of his head, killing him instantly. From a house that was located on the opposite side of the street, three teenage eyewitnesses saw the unfolding events and immediately called the police, but unfortunately crossed wires or misinterpretation by the police dispatcher regarding the specifics of the crime meant that the dispatcher had mistakenly informed patrolmen to be on the lookout for an African-American male adult, ultimately allowing the killer to escape the crime scene down Jackson Street just one block from the crime scene. Unknown at the time, this was to become the best and ultimately last chance of ever capturing the elusive Zodiac Killer. The three teenagers were around 50 feet away from the scene that they were watching, and described the suspect to the police dispatcher as a white male, early 40s, around 5'8", heavy build and reddish-brown hair, wearing dark trousers, a parka jacket, and dark shoes. But the false description helped the Zodiac Killer escape into the night. The killer removed a near section of the victim's t-shirt, as well as wiping down various parts of the taxicab interior, including the driver's side compartment. Upon leaving the vehicle, he was further observed wiping down the exterior right front passenger door and driver's side door handles. Fingerprints were taken from various parts of the taxicab, including the door handles, but the most significant find were the bloody prints retrieved from the doorpost between the driver's side door and the left rear passenger door. These fingerprints are believed to be from the Zodiac Killer, and evidence throughout this case, including handwriting analysis, points to the fact that the Zodiac Killer was right-handed, consistent with a shot to the right side of Paul Stein's head from the rear of the taxicab. After the murder, the swatches of Paul Stein's shirt were mailed along with a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle two days later. The Zodiac also took the taxicab keys, along with Paul Stein's wallet, and these items have never been recovered. The three teen witnesses worked with a police artist to prepare a composite sketch of Stein's killer, and a few days later, the police artist returned, working to prepare a second sketch. The San Francisco Police Department continues to investigate an estimated 2,500 suspects over a period of years. The Stein murder was initially believed to be a routine robbery that had escalated into a homicidal violence. However, on October 13th, the San Francisco Chronicle received a new letter from the Zodiac that claimed credit for killing and contained a torn section of Stein's bloody shirt to show proof of his involvement, along with a further threat to kill school children, stating, I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. This led to widespread fear and panic, with nobody prepared to take the threats lightly, as the Zodiac Killer had certainly proved himself a murderer without remorse. In response to this latest communication, the police mobilized armed guards and tracking of school buses, along with increased surveillance in surrounding areas. 
On November 8, 1969, the Zodiac mailed a card with another cryptogram consisting of 340 characters. The cipher, known as the Z340, remained unsolved for over 51 years. But on December 5, 2020, it was deciphered by an international team of private citizens, including American software designer David Orenkang, Australian mathematician Sam Blake, and Belgian programmer Jarl van Eyck. In the decrypted message, the Zodiac denied being the Sam who spoke on AM San Francisco, explaining that he was not afraid of the gas chamber because he said, quote, it will send me to paradise all the sooner. The team submitted their findings to the FBI, which verified the discovery. But the FBI then stated that the decoded message gave no further clues to the identity of the Zodiac. On November 9th, 1969, the Zodiac yet again alludes to the Paul Stein murder in a seven-page letter mailed one day after his dripping pen card and the 340 cipher was received. In it, he claimed the police had stopped him minutes after the killing of Paul Stein and let him on his way. There would be no more chances to capture the Zodiac Killer, and the mystery has now remained unsolved for over half a century. Excerpts from the letter were published in the Chronicle on November 12th, including the Zodiac's claim that same day. Between 1970 and 1974, the Zodiac Killer sent 12 more letters to the police department with taunts and threats. Some of them included clues as to his past murders, and one of them connected him to the Bates murder in 1966. The letter included a kill count at the bottom, and it gradually rises throughout the years, but none of the murders were ever connected to the Zodiac. The Zodiac Killer case remains unsolved, and although suspects have come forward and continue to come forward to this day, no one has been confirmed as the actual Zodiac Killer. Some of the more famous suspects include Arthur Leigh Allen, who was dismissed because of his handwriting sample, and Earl Van Best Jr., more recently, who was accused by his son in a tell-all book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All. Hopefully, with the more recent advancements in technology and websites like Ancestry.com, we can get one step closer to figuring out who the Zodiac Killer actually is using leftover DNA evidence. Fortunately, now that it's 2021, the Zodiac Killer should be around 80 to 90 years old now, unless he's already passed away, and he's no longer committing any of these heinous crimes. Thank you guys again so much for listening to this week's episode of Crime Couch over the Zodiac Killer. I know it took longer than usual, but I still plan on uploading episodes every week. If you want to get new updates about future episodes, go ahead and head over to our Instagram account at the Crime Couch Podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast and check us out on Spotify. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. On a, on a large one.